This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today is Professor Nick Freudenberg, Distinguished Professor of Public Health at the City University of New York, to discuss his recently Oxford University Press published book, At What Cost Modern Capitalism and the Future of Health. Professor Freudenberg, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Professor Freudenberg's uh, bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. By way of introduction, Marion Nestle, NYU's Professor Merit of Nutrition, accurately characterized at what cost as, quote-unquote, a must-read for anyone who wants to understand why food insecurity, low-wage work, chronic disease, and environmental degradation are such widespread and seemingly intractable problems. Capitalism may not be their only cause, but it is common to all of them, close quote. Connecting the dots between our abysmal health status and our economic system, largely defined as 19th century economic liberalism, is essential because, as I've learned over the past 25 years doing healthcare research and policy work in D.C., federal legislators and regulators are, to be polite, hesitant to, dis- to address rather the negative effects our economy has on our health and, moreover, our planet's health. For example, Nobel Prize Princeton economist Angus Deaton, who has testified before the Congress on several occasions, evidently to no effect, has argued we annually suffer 100,000 deaths of despair in part because the Congress abandoned labor union movements 50 years ago. One final note, this discussion is related to several previous podcast interviews dating back at least to September 2016, when I interviewed Daniel Hatcher regarding his work, The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable. With me again to discuss his recent book, At What Cost, is Nick Freudenberg. So that is background, uh, Professor Freudenberg. Let me begin with this uh, moreover obvious question. Your 326-page volume opens with the statement, quote-unquote, 2020 was a banner year for followers of the apocalypse. While you moreover describe the record-breaking number of climate disasters last year, you add, quote-unquote, and of course there was the COVID-19 pandemic. As of a few days ago, the U.S., with 4% of the world's population, accounted for 17.3% of worldwide COVID deaths. So my question for you, fairly obvious again, what does this say about the relationship we have between our economic model and public health? Sure. I think what uh, I have observed uh, in the last year and really over the last couple decades is that the political and economic system Uh, which I call 21st century capitalism, has increasingly uh, jeopardized human and planetary health. And I think the COVID pandemic illustrates well the uh, increases in vulnerable populations as a result of uh, work conditions and the huge increase in the United States and around the world of low-wage labor, of a food supply that has been uh, that is highly processed uh, because that is profitable to the food industry and has been linked uh, to COVID, but also to the rising burden of chronic diseases. Uh, and I think our 
political and economic system, our capitalist system, has evolved in a way that the conflicts between human need and profit have become increasingly stark. And so I think those of us in public health have to ask the question, what is the cost of this model and what are the alternatives and what's the path we get uh, from which we get to where we from where we are with this uh, cascade of health crises to one where we have a healthier, more equitable, more sustainable world? And that's the question I try and answer in this book. Okay, thank you. You do note early on about, of course, the numbers relative to the diabetes epidemic in context of uh, the food industry. I will get back to those of us in public health, that statement, uh, in a bit. So let me go next uh, to uh, this question. Your work is essentially a criticism of, of obviously, our capitalist model. Uh, you highlight, you know, the, the prominent role, of course, corporations and a limited, ever-increasingly limited number, rather, of corporations play in, in their effect on the economy. But again, essentially a criticism of neoliberalism, which you name or identify uh, in your text. So relative to how we ever, however we term this, can you explain the major uh, characteristics of that uh, explain or describe uh, how our economic model works? Sure. And I think, uh, again, I've been struck by the changes since the say, the middle of the 20th century, when uh, after World War II, in response to social movements and economic changes, there was a more uh, benign form of capitalism, uh, not perfect by any way, leaving many people out, uh, uh, characterized by racism and so on, but in some ways uh, uh, led to a more equitable dis- distribution. But what we've seen in the last few decades is first the uh, increased globalization of the economy, a globalization controlled by corporations, where there are global supply chains and uh, global uh, consolidation of the major corporations in almost every sector of the economy. And this has given corporations much more economic and political power uh, than in the past. And in the power of uh, governments, labor unions, uh, communities, uh, civil society organizations has diminished. And so corporations have a bigger role in shaping living conditions and health. I think the second uh, important change is what what economists call the financialization of our economy, the growth of the financial sector, uh, speculation, uh, real estate, uh, banking, finance, and that has led to an uh, ever-increasing emphasis on short-term profits. And uh, in, I describe in the book some of the consequences, for example, on cancer care and on the food industry. So that quest for short-term profits uh, benefiting investors and stockholders has led to uh, really a, a much shorter-term perspective and therefore threats to health. Uh, A third uh, trend uh, in our political and economic system has been uh, the increasing uh, shift of the tax burden from people who had more resources to people who have less resources. And we've seen that in the United States, but also in other parts of the world. And that has 
two consequences. It increases income inequality, uh, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, uh, the so-called 99% and 1%. Uh, but it also deprives governments of the resources needed to protect public health. Uh, I think that's been a, a very important trend, and that's also been accompanied by deregulation, another characteristic of uh, neoliberalism, and that has really diminished the power of government to protect public health, environmental health, consumers, and so on, and replace that power with corporate decisions that enhance their profit. And I think the final trend that I'll mention is the increasing control of science and technology by corporations and uh, business elites. And, you know, Pasteur said in the uh, early 19th century that science belongs to humanity. But increasingly, with patent law, with trade agreements, we see that science belongs to corporations. And they use it to maximize profits. Sometimes there's an intersection between public need and the maximization of profits, but oftentimes they're in conflict. And whether we're talking about the energy industry and climate change, the food industry and diet-related diseases, the big tech and the increased surveillance and you know selling uh, personal data about people, in each of those cases, the control of technology by corporations has ended up jeopardizing health. So those are some of the trends that I'm concerned about. And I'm particularly interested in the book in uh, understanding how those trends affect the day-to-day -day lives of ordinary people here in the United States and around the world. And I think the, uh, the important contribution is that our everyday quest for finding healthy food, for finding decent work, for uh, finding affordable, safe transportation. Those uh, searches for what I call the pillars of health is uh, made much more difficult by the changes in capitalism that we've seen in recent decades. Great. Thank you. Uh, relative to your last uh, point, I'll note you wrote a, so the listeners aware, you wrote a piece for STAT, April 2nd, Corporate versus Public Control of Science and Technology, which again, you open with the Louis Pester uh, quote from 1876. And of course, that's very relevant as we speak, because of course, a couple of weeks ago, the Biden administration announced uh, their effort with World Trade, the WTO to liberalize uh, patents such that the vaccine could be distributed in a more timely manner. Uh, and of course, you know what Wall Street's response uh, and the pharma industry's response was to that. Relative to financialization, I'll just make note, of course, you're well aware of the ever-increasing uh, role or participation by private equity in the healthcare industry uh, as well. Amongst others, of course, you mentioned global trade financialization. Of course, there is concentration of monopolies you mentioned deregulation, tax cuts, austerity, wealth inequality, uh, defining citizens as commuters and free markets as universal solutions. And of course, we've now made doctrinaire personal responsibility, uh, more or less oftentimes blaming the victim. Let's go. Let's move on here. Uh, most of your book, six chapters, describe the negative effect cap American capitalism has on what you term the five pillars of well-being or the basic necessities of life. And these are, and you have chapters on each of these, food, education, healthcare, work, transportation, and social connections. 
Uh, this podcast is likely most interested in food and healthcare. Uh, can you describe or summarize how uh, capitalism has affected uh, the food industry? Uh, you, you title, I think, your chapter, or use the phrase prominently, ultra-processed products. And of course, uh, effect it is having on healthcare or how we deliver healthcare as well. Sure. So uh, ultra-processed foods are foods that have gone through an industrial process. They're high in fat, sugar, salt, and they also have uh, dozens uh, or even hundreds of additives, flavorings, colorings, uh, stabilizers. And the story I tell in that chapter in the book is that the global food industry has increasingly found that these ultra-processed products are more profitable than the diet under which humans involved uh, of mostly fresh food, uh, mostly unprocessed or minimally processed. So uh, studies show that in the United States, more than half of our calories on average now come from ultra-processed foods. And a growing body of scientific research shows that diets higher in ultra-processed food uh, are contribute to uh, diabetes, to cancer, certain forms of cancer, to coronary heart disease, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, uh, depression, a whole variety of outcomes through a variety of biological pathways. And I think what we're seeing is that the products that are profitable and convenient for the food industry, uh, uh, sugary beverages, snack food, also turn out to be uh, now the major cause of premature death and preventable illness here in the United States and increasingly around the world. And we have a governance system, uh, a political and economic system, where the food industry can make decisions about what products are in our supermarkets and grocery stores uh, based on what's profitable for them rather than on what supports human health. Uh, that's a big problem, and the cost of allowing the food industry to decide what food choices are available and not available and who has access to healthier food and who is forced to rely on less healthy food because it's more affordable and more available, that has uh, really been uh, uh, had had profoundly troubling health effects. And people experience that because... Uh, as, as one person with uh, diabetes said, every day it's a struggle to get the healthy food that will sustain health rather than uh, contribute to a worsening of the disease. If we turn to medical care, uh, there's a story I tell in the book that was uh, both surprising and upsetting to me, a trend of the last uh, 10 or 15 years that uh, community-based oncology practices, groups of doctors providing cancer care, have e increasingly been bought up by private equity firms because they found they could get a better return on their investment than investing in manufacturing or other sectors of the economy. And when they buy up a practice of five, eight, ten doctors, the first thing they look for is who's bringing in what level of revenues and they get rid of the doctors who are bringing in less revenue, and they look to hire more who can bring in more revenue. Uh, and often, after 
three or four years of extracting profits uh, uh, at, a, at a much higher rate than would be available in the average corporation. They then sell it off to look for something. And any of us who've had a family member with cancer Imagine the disruption when your doctor uh, leaves a practice, when your care is uh, no longer handled by the same institution. Uh, and that's, I think, uh, one example of how the quest for profit has made it more difficult. In addition, uh, many people with cancer end up having to file for bankruptcy in order to pay for their cancer care. And that to my mind, isn't something uh, civilized society does, that those who are struck by cancer should have to go bankrupt and have their whole life disrupted because uh, some entity chooses to make a profit on that process. Okay, uh, thank you. I will, uh, since I mentioned Marion Nestle, uh, whom you thank, actually, in your acknowledgement, uh, her book, uh, now probably 15, 18 years Still, I think, quite excellent, relevant to read, and that's Food Politics. So I'll uh, make mention uh, of it. Um, yes, a great book. Yes, thank you. Uh, let, let, let me go to, um, before we get into the solutions, and you have the concluding third approximately of your book is, is a discussion of solutions. I, I would be very remiss if I didn't ask, where's the healthcare community in all this? Um, I, I ask uh, because you say uh, 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 in your book uh, that public officials uh, have a moral duty or public health officials have a moral duty uh, to address these problems. Um, however, I, I take, since maybe I've been at this too long, a fairly jaded uh, view. I don't see the, particularly on the climate crisis, the healthcare industry has been hiding in the weeds on this. But you may be aware of Elizabeth Rosenthal. She's the Harvard-trained physician, now journalist at Kaiser. You may know her yeah. 17 book, An American Sickness. And speaking of first sentences, I was reminded after reading your first sentence, and the first sentence of her book reads, in the past quarter century, the American medical system has stopped focusing on health or even science. Instead, it attends, or first two sentences, Instead, it attends more or less single-mindedly to its own profits. A pretty condemning statement. So again, where is the, where is the healthcare industry uh, and their responsibility in all this as part of both the problem and the solution? And partly I asked this question, I'm sure you're well aware of the attention of late to the Sackler family, the House of Pain. And since I mentioned Deaton, he gave testimony uh, a year ago next month to the House Budget Committee where he quote-unquote stated quote-unquote, essentially the FDA-approved heroin. Um, pretty straight. We know what, what he's saying with that in that the fact that the physician community prescribed huge amounts or numbers of opioid opioids. But again, where, what's your sense of uh, the healthcare community in all this? Right. Well, I think we need to distinguish between the healthcare industry, which, uh, as, as uh, you said, is focused on making profit like every other sector of the American economy mm -hmm. in this uh, current, uh, in, the, in, the, in the particular uh, iteration of capitalism that we have in this country and is dominant in the world today, and, and healthcare professionals. And I think when we talk about some of the solutions, we see many healthcare professionals on the forefront of the struggles to reform that industry and that sector. So I think the 
pharmaceutical industry, the medical device industry, the hospital industry, uh, and in many cases, the older uh, professional associations have played a negative role, have, have looked to reinforce the uh, profit-driven model of healthcare, and that all of those, all those of us seeking a healthier world, I think, have to take on that industry and have to look at the uh, incremental and transformative changes that will be needed to make uh, to create a healthcare system where human need is the driving force rather than profit. Uh, and I think several of the solutions to the other sectors I look at will also be important in healthcare, the control, uh, the, the taking on monopoly concentration, you know, and looking to enforce antitrust laws, uh, having uh, a more publicly oriented patent system where patents and intellectual knowledge that is developed with public funding, you know, by NIH grants, by uh, publicly funded researchers, should belong to the public and not to the pharmaceutical industry that is simply bringing it to market. So I think there are a number of reforms, uh, changes that are needed in the healthcare sector. And there are also a number of people who are in the healthcare sector who are working for those changes. Great. Thank you. I appreciate your drawing uh, the distinction. Just as an aside relative to our economy, I often think when I'm at a, a, a meeting, now, of course, more of a virtual, that I'd probably have a heart attack if somebody ever mentioned, and you mentioned to your credit in your text, uh, the work by Thomas Piketty, and moreover, of course, his infamous formula, R is greater than G. I never hear in those conversations the connecting the dots between how we deliver care and why and the way in which we deliver it and the influences of, of economic drivers or forces. Um, let, let's go to solutions. Again, uh, this is the latter part uh, of your book. Uh, you provide examples thereof. As you're well aware, you spend some time discussing at least the, the idea behind uh, the Green New Deal. But can you provide some examples or categories of solutions, as, which is how you frame the discussion? Yes. I think in looking for solutions, it's not like there's some magic recipe somewhere right. or some academics are going to sit in an ivory tower and come up with a solution. And in right. fact, if you look around the United States, if you look around the world, everywhere there are people every day coming up with solutions to the problems that capitalism has created for us. And I think what we need to do both as researchers and as activists is to look to uh, identify and uh, and accelerate and bring to scale the solutions that are working. And I try to characterize some of the uh, markers of successful solutions. I think they cut across issues. Uh, they link people's personal lives with the politics of the moment, a lesson, an important lesson that the women's movement taught us. Uh, they address some of the deeper uh, stratifications of power and wealth in our society, systemic racism, uh, sexism, uh, and they uh, recognize that for the problems we're facing, unhealthy food, uh, unsafe work, there are not single solutions, but uh, a, a package of solutions, and the groups working for change look to bring together those packages 
to develop alliances. And the Green New Deal is one such example that looks at, uh, at, at jobs and employment. It looks at the climate emergency. It looks at food. It looks at agriculture. Uh, and, and puts together a comprehensive package that be, can begin to solve multiple problems. And those in the corporate elite uh, ridicule the Green New Deal as being you know, too expensive, too pie in the sky. Mm-hmm. But I think if you look at the uh, support for it among young people, uh, among working people, uh, even among the general population, it's the elite special interests who oppose these comprehensive solutions. And one of the reasons I'm cautiously optimistic about the next decade or so is that I think a lot of people are beginning to lose faith that the current uh, political and economic system, the current organization of capitalism, can solve the problems that we're facing in our day-to-day life. And they want alternatives. And so together, we're going to have to create those alternatives. And it's it's a challenging task. It's a one day at a time and seeing what works and doing more of that and what doesn't work and doing less of that. Uh, that, I think, is the perspective that will enable us to come up with a healthier, more sustainable, more equitable world. Thank you. Just to note, uh, so listeners are aware, the Green New Deal was a resolution, really moreover a statement of principles. And as you uh, uh, define, Professor Freudenberg, uh, of course, zero greenhouse gas emissions. So new jobs, infrastructure, clean air and water, healthy food, sustainable environment, repairing historic oppression, which you outline uh, or discuss in some detail. You also mentioned um, work cooperatives. Uh, for example, I know university hospitals in Cleveland help found Evergreen. They provide a number of services, uh, jobs uh, and services in the Ohio uh, area. Uh, you mentioned yes, mutual. and I describe a worker-owned cooperative of home care workers in uh, the Bronx, New York City, uh, one of the lowest-paid uh, sectors of the healthcare workforce. And here, uh, it's workers themselves who own the company uh, and uh, have been successful, at least in some ways, in improving uh, salaries, working conditions, and control of the work. Those are very promising models that we need to develop more fully. Yeah, absolutely. And, and worker retention, of course, which has huge turnover in that business. You talk about mutual aid organizations uh, amongst others. One I found, uh, I was pleased to see, you mentioned as a, one of the six specific goals, growing the public sector. Tell our listeners what Civica RX is. Yes. And I think this uh, growing the public sector is uh, something that we can see in the pharmaceutical industry, in the food industry. In the pharmaceutical industry, a number of organizations, CivicRx being one, are looking to develop public sector models of producing uh, vaccines, pharmaceuticals, where the uh, patent rights and the exorbitant costs we see, especially for uh, the cancer uh, drugs, the anti-carcinogens that I uh, talked about. Mm -hmm. And I think this model of uh, public ownership has several uh, positive characteristics. First, it, uh, it actually provides competition to the private sector. And in many places, publicly owned uh, businesses or cooperatively owned businesses can perform better, you know, can better serve the public. So it, it provides an alternative model. And it also challenges the notion that only private business, only the market 
can solve social problems. In food, uh, which is an area where I do a lot of my day-to-day uh, -day work, uh, the public sector includes institutional food, uh, school food, uh, food and child care programs, senior programs, hospitals, jails, prisons. That's a very uh, significant part of the food economy. And by cities using their uh, purchasing power to create healthier food, better working conditions, they can really uh, push the food sector towards more meeting human needs. There's a national organization that uh, I and others I'm working with support called the Good Food Purchasing Program, an alliance of cities and states that commit to certain principles around labor, around nutrition, around growing local economies, and develop their purchasing programs for uh, schools and other institutions that support these values. Uh, the SNAP, uh, the food stamp program, is another example of public sector. And right now the SNAP program is providing hundreds of millions of dollars a year to uh, Coca-Cola and PepsiCo and uh, the uh, snack makers. And we ought to be looking for ways to use public money to achieve public goals, a healthier population, healthier, more affordable food. Uh, and I think that's a very promising strategy across sectors. Thank. I'm so glad you emphasized uh, the food industry. I actually did an interview not too long ago with someone, a uh, food security person for the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, specifically on SNAP reform. Uh, you probably know this administration, of course, has increased funding thereof, but still there is work needed to be done. You probably know that the chair of the House Rules Committee, Representative McGovern, is a big anti-hunger food security advocate. Um, and in fact, he just held a hearing on the subject a week or two ago. Um, so I would like to be on that specific subject a bit more optimistic uh, than I am generally. Uh, so, so thank you for emphasizing it. And, and security has been such a, a big problem uh, as a consequence of the pandemic and the economic consequences uh, of the pandemic. And so I think looking for ways to really eliminate, uh, as was the goal you know, when hunger was on the agenda in the 60s to mm -hmm. eliminate hunger and food insecurity in the United States, a fully achievable goal, that would be a wonderful contribution of the uh, Biden administration and the new Congress. I mean, abs I, I, absolutely. In fact, it is a fact we produce twice the amount of calories uh, domestically in foodstuffs uh, than necessary per person. Um, but yet it's a distribution problem in part and, of course, a price problem as well. But the food is there in quantity. So with that, uh, Dr. Fruenberg, we're basically at our time. I'll, I'll allow you to last word and maybe by way of the question, uh, where do you go from here? Well, I think, uh, as I said, that we, the folks in public health and folks working in healthcare and other sectors for healthier populations, I think we need to be creating uh, spaces, public spaces, where we can talk through the issues that are, uh, that where we have shared goals and values and the uh, areas where we differ around universal health care, around uh, a food system that both uh, makes healthy food available and supports food workers with living wages and safe working conditions. And part of the reason the 
various social movements, the food justice movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, workers' movements, have been less than fully successful is we've each been working in our own silo. So I think the task of the next uh, several years is to bring together uh, a policy agenda, a focused local, state, national agenda, one that has both uh, short-term and long-term goals for uh, healthier communities and a healthier nation and a healthier world. And I'm optimistic that we can do that, and I think we all need to be finding ways that we can connect the daily work we do with that goal of creating a more powerful movement that can challenge uh, the corporate notion, which is only those things that are profitable are uh, attainable. Thank you. Well, I will say uh, we need many more research activists such as yourself. So with that, Nick, I genuinely appreciate your time. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.